turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is one of those texts that I've spent a lot of time in over the years, uh, particularly in doing counseling ministry and discipleship and walking with people through difficult times. And so it was interesting this week to start studying uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11, uh, really intentionally to prepare a, a sermon. And so it, it's been uh, in some ways difficult to prepare because my mind wanted to go so many other different companion texts uh, and at the same time a rich delight to prepare as well. Uh, and I'm going to read it in just a moment, but the, I noticed the Prezi is not up and so I want to make sure we get that working, if at all possible here. Otherwise it will be an in the moment sanctification process since it took time to put together. So there we go, there we go. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read down verses 3 through 11 so we can get the whole idea. Uh, I'll tell you before I read this text, this is, uh, this is really almost like a prologue to the rest of for, uh, 2 Corinthians. It's really Paul laying out a lot of the truths that we're going to be able to circle back to time and time again as we work our way through it. Uh, and so while there's rich content here and deep truths here, uh, we're not even going to try to mine all of the gold and the diamonds out of it uh, because Paul is going to come back to it time after time, uh, the same ideas. And so what's most important frankly to me this morning, is that you understand the relational connections that take place through suffering. And so God's means of supergluing a church together or hearts together, first our hearts to God, and then secondarily our hearts uh, to one another. And this is good superglue. This isn't like the, the group of teenagers in London who was arrested a few weeks ago because they were standing outside of a grocery store uh, and they'd mix superglue into hand sanitizer and were giving free pumps out to people. Um, they thought that was hilarious. Uh, police, not so much so. Uh, and so we, we sometimes think of superglue negatively. I think of the young lady I worked with back in Maryland. She was, apparently women will use superglue to repair a cracked nail. I don't know anything about this, but they do that. And she'd accidentally superglued her hand to her kitchen table uh, and they had to call the fire department. So we sometimes think superglue not so good, um, but superglue through suffering is actually a very positive thing. It knits our hearts with one another. And so it's fascinating then that a church that Paul is most at odds with, so much of the conversation is built around suffering. Uh, And they're actually using it as a point to reject him, and he really sees it as God's means to knit them together. And so this is going to be foundational to that entire idea through this whole letter of 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, picking up in verse 3, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, 
we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. There's all kinds of ways for people to be knit to each other, but most commonly it's through shared experiences, shared language knits people together, shared uh, productivity, getting a job done knits people together, shared teams knit people together. There's all kinds of shared ways and experiences in life that knits or binds people together, but researchers have discovered none are stronger or even as strong as pain and suffering. The way it knits people together. There was a group of researchers in Australia that wanted to explore this concept. And so what they did is they had a control group and they had the test group. And in the test group, they had all these people experience what we would call mild sufferings, right? So at one point, they had to put their hand down in an ice water bath and hold it there. And they, and they went long enough where it went from cold, just feeling cold, to actually that spot where it starts feeling like needle pricks in your hand. And they all had to keep their hands in there a certain amount of time. And as soon as that was done they had them do a wall sit until it was uncomfortable and they felt like their quads were going to give out and they were going to collapse to the ground Uh, another point they had them eat incredibly hot chili uh, that was uncomfortably hot and even painfully hot and then in the other group uh, they didn't have them go through any painful experiences they had them stick their hand in a jar of water that was room temperature ambient room temperature so not uncomfortable at all Uh, they had them sit around and just talk they had them eat candy instead of this hot chili and so you had one group a group of strangers that didn't know each other and had no shared experience of suffering at all the other group that otherwise were strangers had now experienced all these moments of discomfort and even we would call mild pain and then at the end they sat them down and they said now here's the reality we have monetary rewards and we can either give these rewards out individually or we can give the rewards out to the entire group And we're going to base it upon the way you anonymously vote. And so here's a number scale, one to seven. If you pick seven on the top end of the scale, then the group will get more of the reward. If you pick down on the lower end, we will take more from the group and give it to you individually. And so it was all about, would they rather the best for the entire group or would they rather the best for the individuals every time they ran this test? The people that experienced no shared pain, they were strangers otherwise, They all drifted toward the lower end of the scale. Not everybody chose a one. Some certainly went two or three. I went a little bit, but I'll give some back to the group. But routinely, those that had the shared experiences of pain, otherwise not knowing one another, all drifted to the higher end. Why was that? And it was a way that researchers were beginning to understand the idea that you and I, otherwise being strangers, if we share experiences of suffering and of pain, And if difficulties, it knits us together in unique ways. And so instead of people even thinking, I've suffered so much personally, I deserve more, their tendency was to say, we've all suffered, we should all enjoy blessing, rather than just take for me individually. It tells us a lot about the way we're wired. We're hardwired from God then to be a people of community. And we understand that in a lot of different ways, but specifically in this realm. If a church is going to be united, if a people are going to be connected, if hearts will be knit together, they're going to have to share 
and suffering. They're going to have to experience discomfort and pain. There are even companies now that, that, and I'm not sure the ethics of this, but they will take their groups, their lead teams of managers, and they'll do these trust experiments, but behind the scenes, they're intentionally designed to make them fail and to suffer even physically and mentally and emotionally because they know it will actually knit them together in powerful ways. I think when we look at the Bible, we certainly see the positive effects of that in the church in Corinth with what Paul's going to do here in 2 Corinthians. We also see the negatives of that also. We see it with Job's friends. We see what happens, though, when people don't share suffering correctly. When people enter into the sufferings of others, but instead of giving comfort, there's condemnation. And instead of giving counsel, there's criticism. Instead of just giving their presence, they come with empty platitudes that ultimately don't help him at all. And so starting into 2 Corinthians now, and going after a text where Paul's going to lay this foundation, I think it's time at the start to identify maybe five ways that Christians frequently think about suffering in error. And it actually hinders this connectivity. It, it stops the ability of knitting. It would be like those scientists having this group where everybody shares a painful experience, but putting someone in that group that doesn't experience physical pain or putting a sociopath in that group who seems to have no conscience. They have no appreciation for the sufferings of others, and then they are not then able to comfort others. And so here are five false beliefs about suffering that even creep into the Christian realm. First of all, suffering is a competitive sport. It's the sense that you know that you're going through a dark and difficult time. You know that you are experiencing some hardship. And, and let's just be clear, that could be financial, relational, emotional, spiritual. It can be any of these. You know you're going through a dark and difficult time. But the fact is, you know it's simply not as hard as it is for others right now. As one guy said, uh, quote, just because I didn't get hit by a truck doesn't mean my knee surgery hurt any less. You know, if we look around the world, we can always find people that are suffering more than us or experience a hardship that we certainly wouldn't want and I think we've all been prone to this I know I certainly have in my own life or my own heart of suffering experiencing pain there's always people I can think of that have it far worse maybe even close friends and family that are suffering what I would perceive as far more difficult the danger of this, and, and, and maybe we go there, I, I think if we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, we go there because we don't want to mope, right? We, the last thing we want to be is to be selfish. I have it worse than anyone else. We don't want to go there. But unfortunately, when this creeps in to our own hearts or how we deal with others, we actually minimize hurt and suffering. We make light of the pain that our own hearts or others are experiencing. And if we make light of the pain and the hurt, we will also be robbed of the comfort that we are intended to receive because we don't need really Jesus in that moment. We can handle it. And so suffering as a competitive sport is something that needs to go out the window. Uh, that's one of those I have to, that's, I'm just preaching to my own heart in this moment. I got to teach my heart uh, to not go there and rebuke my own heart with that. Secondarily, that the cross silences our suffering. It's kind of an outflow of the first, but it, but it really is this mindset. The suffering of Jesus was so profound and significant that it effectively shushes our suffering. Uh, it, it, it's that you, you look at the suffering of Christ and the truth theologically is that it was supreme, it was beyond comprehension. If I'm going to put it on baseline, the suffering of Jesus, 
is objectively worse than the suffering that anyone else can or has experienced. But this goes against the way Scripture would want us to think about the sufferings of Christ. He didn't suffer to silence our suffering. And in fact, when you look in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, and then again in chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, it tells us that he suffered so that he could be merciful toward our suffering. He suffered so that he could be tender toward our suffering. That's a far, far cry from someone who suffered far more than we have, looking at us and saying, get over yourself, you don't have it that bad, look what I went through on the cross. That's not at all Jesus' perspective. And it must not at all be our perspective. Thirdly, that suffering means that I have sinned. It's the same assumption that Job's friends make, right? And frankly, it's the same assumption of the Corinthians towards Paul. If Paul is suffering, if he's weak and he's broken, and if he's dealing with difficulty of abuse and physical affliction, it's because he has a problem. Job is suffering, according to his friends, heretically, because he must have sinned to bring this about. It's this idea that God is in some way pouring out a sense of wrath upon us for any suffering. It's to say your suffering is your fault. It's the idea that you have earned or you somehow deserve this pain. The flip side then of that is that if you were stronger or holier or your faith was better, then this suffering would not have had to come. It's almost like we picture God, our Father in heaven, and looking at us, looking down from heaven upon us and saying, you know, I've tried blessing, I've tried people, I've tried sermons, tried devotions, tried good Christian music, I, I've tried other literature, he ain't listening, she isn't responding. Okay, whammo! That'll teach him. Now, if an earthly father did that, we would call them abusive and unkind, and yet that's frequently how we warp our ideas of suffering. Fourthly, that comforting the sufferer encourages a victim mindset. The reality is we need to patiently help people process through their pain. They need to come to grips with the events that are surrounding what they're experiencing, the things that have brought suffering into their life, a new normal that they now face, helping them to understand how to move forward in grace and in the strength of the Spirit. This is comfort. It doesn't demand from them to feel better, to be stronger, or just to get over it. True suffering is not solved by putting on your big boy britches and just getting through life. Thinking that comfort is coddling is to ultimately deny a key attribute of God. And so we frequently withhold comfort from suffering people because we don't want to encourage this victim mindset. Then fifthly, fifthly, God allows suffering for the good it brings. Now, each of these have elements of truth, and I think that's why we warp them so well. The reality is we recognize that suffering does bring good. In fact, the whole theme of this book is the good that suffering is going to bring. James is going to argue for the good that suffering brings. Hebrews argues for the good that suffering brings. Jesus argues for the good that suffering brings. Unfortunately, though, there is a way that we think through this that is really wrong, heretical, and unhelpful. And it's that it puts pain on a scale here on earth. It's really where we get the classic phrase when someone passes away and there's loss. This is where I've heard it most commonly. Well, it's all worth it if just one person gets saved. 
The scale is this, then. Depth of pain can be balanced by perceived and observable good. And unfortunately, that's not true. I can actually put it to you with the greatest pain that's ever existed in the world. Is God's wrath ever going to be fully satisfied for the painful death of his son? No. Suffering will be eternal for those who do not repent and believe. There is no way to pay back. There is no balancing, ultimately, for that suffering. Furthermore, when we think of this, it means that every grace of God that we experience in our suffering is actually a reflection of our guilt. God has to give us grace because of all this bad that we've done. Was there really no other way for me to learn these lessons? For the benefits that they have been produced? I guess I was so bad off that God had to do something drastic to get my attention. Occasionally, occasionally, there are times when these types of correlations or connections are clear. A car accident awakens the drunkard who continually drives drunk. Severity of addiction results in extreme consequences that awaken someone's eyes. A child running away alerts a parent or others to abusive parenting styles, perhaps. But we must not force this where it is not obvious. When we do, we minimize, marginalize the hurt and the suffering that people experience, and unfortunately we become more like Job's friends than we are ever like the Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot of complexities there, a lot of difficulties there. I don't know about you, but as I go down through that list of five, there's certainly times and moments and seasons of my life that some of those I've applied more to my own heart and even as I've dealt with others to my shame. Instead of maybe coming back to just the pure word and seeking to comfort the way God intends to comfort. Suffering can make you feel all alone, like nothing else. And so what 2 Corinthians presents to us, particularly here in this section of text, is that suffering can actually be a kind tool of God to deepen our relationship with our Heavenly Father and strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that comfort can happen poorly. We want it to happen rightly. We want to receive good comfort, and we want to give good comfort. We want our hearts to be knit together with others, even as we are seeking to be knit with them in return. And so we can think of this whole section then, chapter, th- or chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, as about connection to the Father and connection to others. Suffering does a profound work in your life and in my life that is intended and designed to deepen our intimacy with Christ and with others like nothing else can. The task is up to you and I to understand how that happens and to, by obedience to the empowering of the Spirit, to make that happen. It will not happen naturally. Left to ourselves, we will suffer in isolation, or we will suffer in mopiness, we will suffer in self-consumed angst, We will suffer in anger. We will withhold comfort from others. We will not be a balm of Gilead. We will snuff out smoldering wicks, and we will break bruised reeds. Paul knows that suffering is a kind tool, and he wants the Corinthians and us here a few thousand years later to really understand it. And so we can then zoom out and start thinking through this relational connection to the Father. If you put your eyes back down to the text, Paul starts 2 Corinthians in an incredibly 
unusual way. In fact, it's the only way he begins any of his letters is, is like this. All the rest of his letters have a particular kind of formula that which Paul uses and he writes. But 2 Corinthians is uniquely different. All of the other letters Paul writes begin by praising God for his audience. Uh, it would be like him saying, I thank God for Kennerly Road Baptist Church. But that's not how Paul begins 2 Corinthians. He begins it this way, I thank God for what he's done in me, for you. And so it seems really self-absorbed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, now while that is a general we, it's also very specific we. And, it's, and, it's, and he's really saying, praise God for how he's comforted me in my affliction so I can comfort you. It's this seeming self-focus that we would normally expect from sufferers. You know, all of us have known the, the sense of being sick and wanting people to just come and serve us, not wanting to serve others, right? And so it, on face value, you'd think, well, is it that? But no, because you notice that his continual gratitude is toward God. Paul understands that suffering has given him a unique connection to God the Father that he would get no other way. Now, if Paul is thanking God for suffering, we might be tempted to think then his suffering must not have been that bad, right? There's certain sufferings that seems like we'd be able to say, oh, thank the Lord for that, that he sent this into my life. He used that to awaken my senses and draw me closer to him. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about God shouting to us in our pain. And so we might say, oh, that was a kind pain from God. But then there's other sufferings. It would be really difficult to say, praise God for that. I mean, I, I guarantee you, every one of us this morning has either experienced those or we could easily conjure them up. What would be the suffering that God could bring into your life that you would have a very difficult time being grateful for? And so we'd be tempted when Paul shows this kind of gratitude to think that then his suffering must not have been that bad. It's certainly not as bad as mine. If I'm in a season where I'm having a very difficult time being grateful to God for what he's going to do in the midst of this pain and the sorrow then maybe mine is worse than Paul's. But if you look down verses 8 and 9, that's not the case at all. He describes the kind of affliction that he's experiencing. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. In other words, he, you ever been in a spot where you said, I'm at the end of my strength? I don't know how I can do this. I don't know how I can how I can go to work, how I can get out of bed, how I can make this phone call, how I can make this meal, how I can go grocery shopping, how I can take care of these kids, how I can take care of this friend, this spouse. I don't know how I can show up at church. I don't know how I can worship. I don't know how I can read my Bible. That's beyond my strength. He says he was burdened beyond his strength that so much that he despaired of life itself. Now, that could be taken as far as suicidal. I don't think we can take Paul that far in the language. Some attempt to. There are other Christian leaders through the Bible who certainly struggle to that extent. Uh, Moses does. Uh, he says, God, I'd rather die than keep leading these people. That's a bold declaration to the one that you've experienced the backside of his glory. Say, I'd rather you kill me. I mean, he knows God has power, right? 
I mean, that's, that's a scary moment. God, I'd rather you just kill me than have me keep leading these people. I mean, for all Moses knows, in that moment, God goes, thanks, come home. Elijah despairs to that point. Despairs even of life itself. And, and so I don't, while there are others that, that we certainly could say certainly struggled to that extent, we would even say of suicidal. I don't think that's where Paul is, but Paul is just shy of that. His despair of life is seeing no value in what he's doing or what God has called him to do. Why keep on keeping on? He despairs of life even itself. He says that we felt we had received the sentence of death. Uh, what he means there is God is, is, this is it. God's put up the wall and he's going to end it. And he goes on though, he says that's to make us rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from a deadly peril in verse 10. No, no, Paul was in a dark spot. This wasn't light suffering for Paul to say he's grateful for what God has done. This is deep, dark suffering that he's grateful for what God has done and is doing. That's helpful to us because it doesn't, and that's why those five false views are really helpful, it doesn't minimize the pain we're going through. But it does encourage us, much like Hebrews 11, of looking forward to the hall of faith. They have suffered, and I saw God's comfort to them. And it does begin to embolden our faith, and at least ask this question in seasons of despair, will he not also comfort me? And so it's not that Paul's experiencing light comfort. So on what basis is he grateful to God for comfort? Well, he's grateful for God, first of all, because it's suffering shouted God's character. There are two key attributes of God that he points to. He says he's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Both of those are, are connected in a couple of ways. First of all, their connection is that they are always received outside of us. We realize we need mercy when we've been sinful. We realize we need comfort when we are suffering. And we need someone outside of us to do that work. When you and I are suffering then, Paul is telling us that you uniquely learn about God coming into your world to minister grace to you like no other time. This is very different from when you're doing ministry and, and, you, and you, I don't know the words to say, I don't know the prayers to pray, I don't know the text to go to, and you show up at the scene and God's spirit kindly, mystically, supernaturally gives you what to say puts a new song in your heart or encourages you, and you're like, oh, that, that feels lots more like you and the Spirit working together, the Spirit empowering you as you do ministry. This is very much, I'm not doing a whole lot of anything, but I'm experiencing a whole lot of God. It's outside of me coming into me. Second connection point is they're both very tender. You don't show mercy to someone without uh, affection and tenderness and kindness. You don't show comfort, real comfort to someone without tenderness and kindness. I, I've often marveled at undertakers. There's a couple here in town that I've had a fair amount of dealings with and their ability to just ooze compassion and comfort for people. And, and I'll be honest with you, for a long time, uh, lots of these guys, I thought, man, they can do something I could never do. They can flip a switch and put it on and turn it off. And my perception was, in private, they probably don't have a whole lot of compassion. It's just that they do it publicly. But as I've done more and more experiences with these guys, I've actually discovered lots of them 
several of them, particularly in our area, are believers, and there's just a genuine oozing of compassion that doesn't turn off when they get in their car. I've had private moments with them, and I've seen them in ways that, that others don't always have the opportunity, and I've seen compassion and tenderness, and, and I just tell you that because God oozes comfort. He oozes compassion and mercy. These are linked in affection. We just highlighted one falsehood about suffering, that this must just be the direct result of my sin. I think the reality is all of us can think of sins that we are committing, have committed. Uh, We realize that every one of our sins deserves God's judgment and his wrath. And yet God answers them with mercy. Paul focuses on mercy in the midst of his suffering because he knows the temptation of our heart is to say, I just deserve this. And this is an expression of wrath. It's a denial of Romans 5 that tells us that when the believer suffers, it's not his wrath. For the believer, God has poured all of his wrath out on Christ. This is not a result of his judgmental anger. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences to sin. That doesn't mean there isn't chastening and discipline in Hebrews 12. But what this isn't is God putting back his robes of judgment back on to nail his kid. That's not what he's doing. And Paul is reminded of God's kind mercy. In fact, as he meditates on it, some kind of sickness or illness or abandonment by friends, in Paul's case, nakedness, lack of financial provision, physical health issues, imprisonment, whippings, and beatings. For Paul, Paul could think of all these ways he was sinful, and he realized what his sin really deserves is death. This suffering isn't that. God is being merciful to me, a sinner. He's realizing the reminder of mercy points to our unworthiness, but God's loving kindness. The term comfort there becomes the dominant word in the text. It almost feels uncomfortable to read it out loud because it shows up 10 times in just between verses 3 and 7. It's a word that if you've been around church for time, then you're already familiar with. It's a word that Christ turns into a noun when he calls the Holy Spirit or Holy Spirit the comforter, the the paracleto, the, the paraclete, the walk beside one. And it, and it is this idea of comfort. He says that nothing has taught him the comfort of God like suffering. When we understand with Christ identifying the Holy Spirit as the comforter, we understand then that this is a lot more than just a hug or wiping away of tears. It is exhortation, it is instruction, it's emboldening, it's empowering. These two ideas then, mercy and comfort, are best learned by the suffering saint. For you and I to see these and to know experientially these attributes of God is only going to happen through tears. And so, with it being such a core concept, it's important that we really understand comfort, biblically. Comfort is spiritual strengthening and the character, truth, and affections of God. It's far more than the presence of God, but it's never less than the presence of God in your life. It's far deeper than the compassion of God, but it's never less than God's compassion. It's far grander than reminders of his love, but but comfort is never apart from his love. To know God's comfort, Matthew tells us, requires humility. It requires an honest sorrowing before him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they 
shall be comforted. I, I just want to maybe free your hearts with this truth. You are not more spiritual when if you go through sufferings and sorrows, you think it's critical for you to communicate to God and others that you're fine. You're not. And it's okay to not be fine. God can handle the anger of suffering. He can handle the angst, the confusion. God can handle your struggles in the midst of your suffering. He can handle your sorrowing and he invites it. He doesn't get frustrated with it. He's not enraged by it. God doesn't look down and say, just get over it. Look at what my son experienced and this is what you're suffering over. Can't you just trust in my bigger plan and move on? Unfortunately, I've done enough church life to know that you'll run into people and they are afraid to be honest about their suffering. They are afraid to be humble about how dark it is and how difficult it is. And, and I think that there's all kinds of reasons. And so I don't mean it in a judgmental way. Certainly these are temptations my own heart has, has experienced and given into. But I think sometimes we, we are tempted to do that because we've experienced some of those errors when we've expressed our suffering. We've experienced uh, being down and having someone kick us in the teeth. We've experienced what Paul is experiencing now as he's writing to a church that he cares about and he's loved and he's literally birthed through his life. They're now blaming him for his suffering. And so we are tempted to be silent instead of to speak in open, transparent ways about what we're going through. But God gives comfort. The comfort of God is reminders of his love then that strengthen us spiritually. The tenderness of God that strengthens us spiritually. The acceptance of God that strengthens us spiritually. The identification in Christ, the empowering of the Spirit. When we know God's comfort, we realize that unlike Job's accusing friends, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. It reminds us of our safety in him. We realize that if our suffering is from injustice, his wrath and perfect justice prevail. When our suffering is from sickness, abandonment, rejection, or aloneness, he knows what it means to suffer sickness, abandonment, rejection, and aloneness. He means that he came to this earth that he might suffer and be touched with every kind of affliction so that he might be a good, merciful, comforting high priest to us. And God is the ultimate one who weeps with those who weep. The comfort of God then is also marked out by Paul as being both very unique and very common. We can see it in verses 4 and then 8 through 10. In verse 4 he says, Who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which ourselves are comforted by God. This is really important for us to note because comforting is not limited to those who have experienced your specific suffering. Let me say that again. Comfort is not limited to those who have experienced your specific suffering. You may be suffering a prodigal child. Comfort cannot, is not limited only to those who have had a prodigal child. If you're suffering a financial setback, Comfort is not limited only to those who have experienced like financial setbacks. If you're suffering as a, as a shepherd or as a father, comfort is not limited only to those who have the experiences of a shepherd or a father. But our hearts are tempted that way. 
Our hearts are tempted to believe the only one who can communicate comfort to me is someone who's experienced exactly what I've experienced. That is a lie of Satan that will shut the door to receiving the ministry of God himself and the ministry of God through others. The fact of the matter is there is a, just a commonality to comfort that we receive from God in suffering. And so someone who has never lost a child can, by God's grace, speak comfort into someone who has lost a child. Someone who's never experienced cancer can speak comfort into someone with a death sentence of cancer. Someone who's never experienced financial hardship can speak comfort. There is a commonality to it, but there is also a uniqueness to it that we want to own and be honest about. And you see that, again, when Paul just lists, grocery lists all of his in verses 8 through 10. Uh, affliction they experience, abuse and persecution, burden beyond our strength, the spirit of life itself, receive the sentence of death, deadly peril. There can be unique insights from the sufferings you've experienced to communicate comfort into the lives of others. And so we really have to balance it, right? So on one hand, we need to think this. If we're in a season of suffering, I don't have to be on a quest for someone experiencing identical suffering to receive comfort. Instead, I need to be open and willing to receive comfort directly from God and through others, no matter the experience that they're speaking out of. When I'm suffering, that needs to be my mindset. As someone seeking to give comfort, we need to also think of the commonality. I am willing to bring the things that I have learned from God, the spiritual strengthening I received, to bear on somebody's life, no matter what their specifics are. But also, I want to be in tune if someone is experiencing some of the same specificity in their suffering, that there may be some unique lessons that God has taught me that I can come into their life with. And so it's an idea then of the commonality and the uniqueness to it. How does God do this? Because what Paul is pointing out to here again and again is that God has comforted us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us. Uh, For we share, verse 5, abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. How does God comfort us? Well, it's mystical. And, and, And what I mean by that, it is the spiritual work of God in our lives. In some ways, it's hard to quantify, but I'll give you some specific ways that we see it. One is God's posture toward us. One is God's posture toward us. So so in the strengthening that happens in our souls, as we push against the errors that I pointed at the beginning, I, I am reminded that as I'm suffering, this is not God's wrath on me. And God loves me, and he's chosen me, and he's adopted me. And he cares for me. And he's told me if I need fish and bread to ask, he won't give me gravel and serpents that will break my teeth and poison my blood. That God loves me and he sees sparrows fall to the ground. He cares for me. And he will not see his children forsaken or lacking bread. And that he will send the David against my Goliaths. It's his posture towards us. Strengthens us spiritually. It's through song. You will uniquely turn on the radio and suddenly hear the song and you're like, where did that come from? Did that songwriter write that truth just for me? Going through a particularly dark time, my wife and I discovered Laura's story song, Blessings. 
that she wrote in her own sufferings about the sickness of her husband. And yet it speaks so presciently into my own life where I've experienced suffering. He will do it through his word. You will open the word, and there are times, this is why a good Bible reading plan can be so helpful sometimes, right? Because sometimes you are searching the word for truth, and there's not, I'm not, that's not wrong. But then there's other times you're going through a season, you'll open your Bible, the next passage to read is this. You read it, and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? What a kind truth from God in this moment. Sometimes it will be when you can't seem to do anything else and you will simply walk outside on your front porch and you'll have a cup of coffee and you'll see the most amazing sunrise. And it's through creation that you see surrounding you. You hear birds chirping and water flowing and you see rain falling to earth and you're reminded that as the rain falls and as the snow falls from heaven, so God's word falls upon the earth and, and we serve a creator God who's redeeming and he's a God of beauty and, and of aesthetics and of glory and he comforts your heart. And he strengthens you spiritually. Paul understood, though, that a primary means of God to comfort others is through others. And so suffering is intended to build this relational connection in the community. Our challenges are never just for us. Our sufferings are never intended for just us alone. Paul got this idea, the very thing that the Corinthians were judging him about, namely his suffering and his weakness, was actually intended by God to knit them together. But how could that be, and how could he work that? And he does it through a flow, and it's a flow from suffering to comfort. And, and so I'm not going to unpack all of this flow, but I do want you to at least see it in the text. First, Paul suffers, who comforts us in all our affliction. Paul experiences suffering so that Paul might experience God's comfort. He then points out the reality, every suffering brings every comfort. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And the language is really helpful there because what it indicates is it's like every specific kind of suffering is met with every specific kind of comfort. As a little boy, I think I was like four or five, I had to have surgery. I was in the hospital, um, children's ward. I, I don't know if it was because of the, the, the time frame or what, but parents were not able to spend the night. And I remember as a little boy laying awake in the bed at night, looking at that white clock on the wall and knowing it's the middle of the night, it's black outside, and I felt so alone and scared. Bad illustration. Because there's moments you just go right to, right? And all my little heart knew to sing was Jesus loves me. And so I just sang and sang and sang, not knowing the nurse on the ward that night is a believer. She heard my singing. She came and she picked me up and carried me around and I did rounds with her. And it was such a comfort to my heart, a specific comfort to a specific hurting, suffering little boy. Paul says that, that God, he suffer, Paul suffers, then God brings comfort in every specific kind. Of suffering brings every specific kind of comfort this work then brought salvation to them if we are afflicted it is for your comfort and salvation and if we are comforted it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer and so this brings work now brings strengthening paul understood this then the flow was this god is going to bring suffering to me to bring comfort to me in every kind of way so that i can bring salvation to you and then sanctification strengthening to you. 
The gospel itself is built on the back of suffering. Suffering is an integral aspect of the means of the gospel's work in the believer's life. We could go to all kinds of texts that it is the means God uses to purify and strengthen our faith. It is the means God intends to declare that he is merciful and comforting to us. But we see it in Christ's gospel language when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Salvation is risky because it will include suffering. Jesus doesn't hide that. Count the cost. Take up your cross and follow me. Or when he tells people the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In our sanctification, Paul longs to experience the sufferings of Christ in Philippians 3.10. Now, if you've made it this far in the sermon, you might be tempted to ask, why? Why would suffering be such a key part of how God knits our hearts to him and then knits our hearts to others? Why? Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Suffering is an integral part of the gospel, an integral part of our sanctification, because it is the means by which we know the spiritual strengthening hand of God. People who don't suffer, believers who don't suffer, would never, ever, ever understand mercy and comfort. Ever. They won't get it. And in fact, Paul is pointing to the significance of this. And when we understand those phrases of Christ, we would actually say this. If you come to Jesus in salvation and have no comprehension that it will cost you, then you never understood the gospel from the get-go. Because Jesus proclaimed that it would. And so then what are these benefits then of mutual suffering and comfort? How does this really knit our hearts to others? Paul gives us four. Four key ways suffering in the comfort of God it brings, binds our hearts to God and to one another. And so it is all about relationship to God and relationship to others. First of all, it increases endurance. You see it in verse six. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. The comfort we receive from God answers the question of our feeble hearts. How can I get through this? That's the question we ask when we're suffering. How can I get through this? Hebrews 12 tells us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and looking to the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, all those saints that have gone on before us. When you and I are going through suffering, entering into the lives of others who have suffered before us, encourages us to endure in the darkest of times. The worst thing we can do in our suffering is isolate. The worst thing we can do when others are suffering is pull back from them. People ran in the strength of God and we can also. We learn from others things like from Elizabeth Elliot, just do the next right thing. We learn from others like Hudson Taylor when his life work is burned away to just obey the next thing God lays in his path. 
We learn from Peter that when you sinned and you feel like life's a wreck, Jesus comes and he finds you and he reminds you of your mission and he says, go feed my lambs. So that's what I'm going to do. And then later when Peter pens his epistle, he commands shepherds, feed the flock of God. The things that God teaches us, we are intended to impart to others. And chief among them is endure, don't faint in this season of suffering. We begin to learn from other people little practical things like stop and list little victories. When you're in the midst of a dark valley of suffering, you want an atom bomb of victory, but frequently God sends little blessings along the way, and you should set your heart affection and focus on those. So you learn practical steps like stop in the midst of your despair and your suffering and practically begin to list all the blessings of God. There are times in my life where I've sat down with a legal pad and I've made this decision, I've prayed to God, and I've said, God, I'm going to keep listing until the fog lifts. I don't care. I'm going to clear my schedule. I'm just going to list blessings that I see from your hand. I've listed so long before that time has gone away and the page is soaked with tears. I learned it from someone who had lost their spouse in an untimely way and in the midst of the darkness knew nothing else to do but list blessings from God. We learn from other believers how to endure and how to fight through. We keep on pressing on. Comfort encourages obedience. It calms fears. You see it in verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken. We know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Well, what's comfort? Part of that comfort is that it hasn't been shaken any longer. The comfort we receive speaks into hearts that ask, why is this happening to me? Romans 5 tells us it's not for condemnation. Why is this suffering in your life? Why? I know that it's for my growth. I know that it's for my sanctification. But what Paul is telling me is it's absolutely for ministry to others. I know that whatever suffering I'm experiencing is intended by God's hand to minister grace to someone else at some point. Why is this happening to me? Not to oversimplify it or to think that this is the only answer, but it's that I might know and live in the reality of his mercy and comfort even more. Comfort calms fears. Thirdly, it gives hope. It gives hope. You see this in verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I love that. I think I'm going to die. Oh, yeah, I serve the God who's going to raise me from the dead. In the midst of our suffering, it is not uncommon for us to uh, tunnel vision where our hope is at. We want trials to be over. We're prone to ask who can actually help us. We are prone to feel all alone. We want purifying faith fires to tone down a little bit. So God, quit stoking the bellows of the fires that you keep sticking the sword of my faith into. We want power over darkness, even though Jesus told his disciples, don't rejoice that you have power to command demons. Rejoice that you will be with me in heaven in Luke 10, 20. Sometimes we have to be at the end of ourselves to really know his comfort. We have to be at this point to really set our affections and our hearts on eternity. We have to be at the end of ourselves, which is to say, at the end of all the means you and I typically try to use to comfort our hearts, food, exercise, holistic methods, entertaining distractions, political aspirations, 
financial expectations. If I could just have this, eat this, experience this, have this person voted in, then that my suffering would be over. Baloney. We need to come to the point that the answer is Christ alone. Suffering uniquely strips us of idols that blind us to the comforting hand of God. True hope is found in him alone. And none of our means, comfort brings hope. Then lastly, comfort gives connection. Verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. How do I deal with the reality of my aloneness and my feelings of darkness and my suffering? You invite others in. You invite them in so that they can join you in praying. Now, in God's kindness, this is interesting, God knows how frail our prayers can be, specifically in seasons of suffering. And so in Romans 8, he even promises to us in our groanings of our afflictions, we don't even know what to pray because we are suffering. The Spirit prays for us. Now, it's interesting that Paul invites others to prayer for his suffering because I just want to point out this reality. This is not how God works. God doesn't sit in heaven and have a scale, a balance scale of when he's going to relieve your suffering and he's looking for how many people are praying for you. Oh, they got 10 people praying, but not 11. Not enough. If they could just get more people praying, then I will answer. That's not how God works. In fact, we know that even the prayers of one righteous man can avail much. It's not a mount intended to move God's heart. It's a mount intended to broaden his glory when he works. We use a mount as gossip chain. Right? So we'll say, man, could you just pray for this thing that's going on? And we're not necessarily thinking of it like glory for God. And we frequently in church life don't even be honest. We're not even honest about it. So we don't want to invite lots of people. Could you really pray? I'm having a hard time even reading my Bible because my mind is so distracted by this suffering, this trial. We, like, we don't tend to even be honest about what we really need prayer for. But the point is you invite others in so that God's glory as he answers and works is broadened. So what's contingent upon us then is to be honest and humble about what we really need prayer for and to be honest and forthright when he answers and how he answers. So that he might be praised. Paul understood exactly what, I love this quote, the waters of comfort cannot run up the hills of pride. They fall down into the valleys of humility. Sometimes we're too proud to invite other people into this ministry. There's other ways. What are the means that others can connect with hearts in suffering? A note, a card, kind gifts, presents. Sometimes just their presence, C-E, just being there. Their personal testimony of how they've experienced God's comfort, gratitude for others that they've received ministry from, a meal, just loving you with a hug. And through applicable truth. Suffering can be a kind tool to deepen our connection our relationship with our Heavenly Father, and to strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we journey into 2 Corinthians, I charge you, I exhort you to apply this truth into one of our core values that we are going to do community in an open and transparent way. And so we will suffer together knowing 
that our sufferings will invite God's mercy and comfort, and they will strengthen other believers. Where are you at? Are you going into it? Are you in the middle of it? Have you just come out of it? How are you using the ministry of comfort into the lives of others? I encourage you one last very practical thing to do. Sit down, maybe even this afternoon, or talk through with some friends or family this week and make a list of practical ways that you've received comfort and mystical ways, right? So I'm talking about like a word, a, a, a song in a right season, creation. And put it, if you put it in a flyleaf for Bible, if you put it on your, on your iPhone, I don't care, right? But so that the next time somebody is suffering, you are well armed with comforts. Because that's why God brought it into your life. That you might be a minister of mercy and comfort for